Welcome to Round Trip Death. On this show, we have discussions with real people who have had near-death experiences. This is a safe, non-judgmental, non-denominational space where we all have something we can learn from others. While every NDE is different, one of the commonalities is that experiencers come back changed and their lives going forward reflect that change. The question is, what will you and I learn from listening to their stories? We have a special guest with us today, Dr. Yvonne Kaysen, MD, from Toronto, but being smart and being a snowbird right now, out in sunny Southern California. Good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Eric. You know, I think our listeners would love to hear a little bit about you, maybe what kind of doctor you are. Uh, We'll talk about your near-death experiences in a minute, but give us a little background on you. Sure. Um, I'm currently retired, but I'm a retired uh, family physician and MD psychotherapist. So that means I I did psychotherapy, which is like primary care psychiatry as the bulk of my practice. And I had a very unusual specialty. I was on faculty at the University of Toronto in Toronto. And since 1990, My specialty was counseling and researching people who've had near-death experiences and other types of spiritually transformative experiences. And I got into that because, as we're going to talk about very shortly, when I was in medical school and then when I was a resident, I started having powerful spiritual experiences, including a near-death experience in a medevac plane crash. So as a medical doctor, I wanted to know what is going on? I knew I wasn't crazy. I knew these experiences were very real and very powerful, but there was uh, no way within modern medicine to um, even have a word for these experiences other than calling them something pathological, like a hallucination or a delusion. Yeah, the word pathological doesn't sound good. No. And so... uh, so uh, for many years, my my quest to research these phenomena was in in secret, in private. I lived like a double life. I was in the closet. I was an in the closet spiritual seeker while I had a traditional Western medical practice. And I taught at the university, had a very successful career. But then in 1990, I had a very strong experience. I talk about all of this in my new book, Soul Lessons from the Light. Go ahead. Plug the new book, Soul Lessons from the Light. Yep. So hopefully people will be interested to read my story. That's my personal spiritual awakening journey, these powerful spiritual experiences that have driven me to specialize in in supporting experiencers and also now uh, later on in my life launching Spiritual Awakenings International, which is an online not-for-profit charitable organization where we have events every month with speakers talking about diverse spiritual experiences. And also we have experiencers sharing circles every month where people who've had NDEs or other spiritually transformative experiences can come and share in an environment that's confidential and that they feel supported and they feel understood. And all of this has been, like spirit has been propelling me through my own spiritual experiences to specialize my medical career in this unique way. 
Now, I'm guessing this wasn't a specialty that someone could just go seek. Did you, was it hard for you to to get the faculty there to say, you know, yes, okay, you can do something crazy like that? I was the first. I was the first in Canada. And I might also, um, you know, I don't know what was happening in the U.S., but in terms of MDs, there was no other MD medical doctor in Canada specializing in this area. And it was very outside the box when spirit propelled me to publicly specialize my practice in this back in 1990. And I, I did have to um, face hurdles within the medical profession to um, try and um, specialize my practice in this way. But, uh, you know, I think when something is right, invisible fingers sometimes intervene and help out so that the pieces come together so that things can move forward. So my near-death experience in the medevac plane crash in 1979, which we're going to talk about soon, happened when I was a resident at the University of Toronto. I was finishing my residency. And so because of that, you know, all the, the faculties and the department head and everybody knew, oh my goodness, one of our residents has been in a plane crash. They all thought I was dead for a period of time until they learned later about my rescue. It was very well known that I'd been in the plane crash, but not everybody knew that I'd had a near-death experience in the plane crash. And in fact, back then there weren't the word near-death experience was not widely known. They knew that I'd been in a plane crash. And so when I approached my department chairman, I said that I wanted to specialize my practice on counseling and researching uh, this area with patients that uh, he sort of, you know, stroked his chin. He says, oh, this is all from that plane crash that happened when you were a resident. That's what sort of got you pointed in this direction. I said, yes, 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 it is. You know, I mean, there was more than that, but that was a big part of it. And so he said, hmm. Well, as long as you're doing research, that's fine with me. And so when I opened up the clinic specializing this area, I called it the Spiritual Emergence Research and Referral Clinic, you know, with the research prominently there. And so that's how I got the stamp of approval from the university. Now, getting the stamp of approval from the medical licensing bodies, that was a whole other story. And so I had to deal with that a little bit later. But again, by divine coincidence, uh, the grace of God, I had traveled to a conference in California in 1992. And I met um, Dr. Robert Turner, who was one of three uh, American doctors and psychologists, Robert Turner, Francis Liu and David Lukoff, who had just submitted a proposal to the American Psychiatric Association for a new diagnostic category that would encompass and include spiritual experiences as an okay topic, at least it existed as an okay topic for doctors and psychologists to talk to their patients about. And it had just been approved. I mean, this knowledge wasn't even public information yet. So when I uh, so I learned this by meeting Robert Turner at this conference, a Kundalini conference. And so when I got challenged by the medical governing bodies, I was able to inform them because they didn't know yet that this had just been approved by the American Psychiatric Association. So now this is a, a stamp that this is a valid area for doctors to be focusing on with their patients. And I said, and 
I'm the very first doctor in Canada to specialize this area, this new area. So I'm providing a service that no other physician in Canada is providing. And you know what? That did the trick. That's awesome. So not only did you specialize in this, but did I hear you right that until this time, doctors were really not supposed to even talk about it with patients? Not about spiritual issues. It wasn't listed as one of the things that we were supposed to talk about, like maybe the clergy would or the social worker, but not doctors. And uh, But that has now changed. And um, then synchronistically, um, during the 90s, uh, on the media, like on television, on radio, because this was internet wasn't big yet in the 90s, there were two Americans who'd had near-death experiences who became extremely popular. And so they were on all the talk shows, et cetera. And one of them was Betty Eady, and the other one was Danny and Brinkley, who'd had powerful near-death experiences. And so that raised in, like, the public started talking about near-death experiences and then the media in Canada, they were thinking, gee, you know, is there anybody around in Canada who's had a near-death experience? And so when I came, when, you know, I became known to the media, all of a sudden I was gobbled up and I was on TV and radio and magazines and everything in the 90s that there's a doctor in Toronto who's had a near-death experience. And not only that, she's counseling people who've had near-death and other spiritual experiences. So it was mainstream media that also helped to validate and raise awareness of this whole area. And even though this was quite a few years ago, based on how many people that I talk to that have had near-death experiences, there still is very much of a need for counselors that know how to help these people because it is not an easy thing to process. Even if it's a wonderful experience, they come back and it's difficult to process. So yeah. I'm glad you're doing it. I hope some other doctors and um, and counselors are getting into this too. Now, you already threw out the fact that uh, you were in a plane crash, and I probably should have teased that early on. <laughs> and I don't want to make this show a competition about who died in the craziest way or something, because that's that's not what we're about is is trying to make a big spectacular thing out of that but to discuss near death experiences but here's the big but for some reason in the last few days there have been some spectacular i've talked to someone a couple of days ago that was run over by a train someone that was hit by a van going 40 miles an hour and we're going to hear about your plane crash. And I can't, I know it sounds terrible, but I can't wait to hear about your plane crash. But why don't we start at a younger age? Because you had some experiences as a child. Do you mind if we go there first? Sure, we can. Yeah, I now realize, uh, I just want to clarify one point about earlier on is I am retired now and I'm no longer counseling patients who've had spiritual experiences. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm passing on what I've learned to the next generation. So that's part of what I'm doing with my books. A couple of years ago, I released Touched by the Light, which is really the, the handbook of spiritually transformative experiences. And it is a guide for healthcare providers 
leaders, if they want to counsel people who've had spiritual experiences. And it's also a guide for the experiencer themselves to help them find labels for their experiences and the integration process, which is really the hard work that comes after the spiritual awakening. And then my recent book, Soul Lessons from the Light, that is um, for everybody. You know, it's the stories like you want to hear my stories. So this is my stories of the powerful spiritual experiences that that changed my life. Great. And we'll put links to all of these in our show notes as well so people can find them. Thank you. Um, so, yes, I now realize something that I did not know for most of my life. I did not realize that I had had two near-death experiences as a child. I mean, I always remembered these experiences But my first one, for example, it happened when I was five years old, before kindergarten. And, you know, when you're that age, you don't have any yardstick or barometer of what is considered, quotes, paranormal (laughs) uh, versus normal, whatever that means. It's just stuff that happened to me. So this was stuff that happened to me. And similarly, my near-death experience at age 11, I just understood as stuff that happened to me and figured other people were having these experiences too. It was really only... About four to five years ago, that when I spirit inside of me was prompting me to look at these experiences. And so as a researcher, I got out my, you know, criteria for assessing how many of the near-death experience criteria that Moody identified did each of these experiences have. And then when I did that, I thought, oh, my goodness, they both have enough criteria to qualify as a near-death experience. And like, oh, no wonder I'm the way that I am. I've had five near-death experiences and multiple spiritually transformative experiences of many kinds because I started having these experiences as a child. So it's like the doorway in my consciousness was starting to open to spiritual experiences from a very young age. So what I now realize was my first near-death experience, as far as I now realize, (laughs) happened when I was five years old. And I was traveling with my parents in Europe, and we were um, going, um, we were at a train station. We were going to visit somebody traveling there by train, which is people travel by train a lot in Switzerland. And, um, you know, as a youngster, as a five-year-old, I was looking around, very interesting, what's going on at the train station. This was all new for me in Toronto, Canada. We didn't travel by train. And um, I saw a station hand jump off the platform that I was on. He jumped down onto the tracks. He ran across, and then he climbed up on the next platform. And as a little kid, I thought, oh, that looks like fun. I want to do that, too. So I immediately leaned out and started jumping on the railway tracks. And then what happened was when my body was like at a 45 degree angle or something, it was my time stood still. It was like um, my life was a movie and somebody pressed the pause button and it froze, except my thoughts, my consciousness didn't freeze. And I suddenly found my point of perception 20 or 25 feet above my body and I'm looking down. And I could see my little body there, you know, starting to jump off the, the platform. But what I could also see when I was 20, 25 feet above my body was what was happening up ahead of me, which was that a train was rapidly pulling into the station and I was about to be hit by a train. I had I was jumping in front of a rapidly oncoming train. And, you know, it's interesting because 
When I realized that, while I was, I now know it's out of body, but back then I didn't know that. While I was out of body, very oddly, I was not at all afraid. I was totally peaceful. I was totally calm. And when I observed that I was about to be hit by a train, I remember extremely calmly thinking, oh, I see, I'm about to be hit by a train. But there was like no fear, no panic, nothing, just just a calm observation. And then all of a sudden, it was like somebody released the pause button and the movie of my life started moving forward again. And then a man uh, from behind on the train platform pulled my little body back onto the platform and then the train whisked in in front of me and I could feel the wind against my face as the train whisked in and um my parents of course scolded me vigorously and and um and I was sort of you know shook by the whole experience but I didn't talk about it to my parents afterwards because I didn't want to bring on another scolding (laughs) but um how I understood it as a five-year-old was I thought I could fly. I thought that that was what had happened that day, that I had flown. That's how I understood the out-of-body experience. And I think afterwards, I was also having more out-of-body experiences in my dreams because I also have memories after that of seeing myself like flying down the street to the schoolyard that was down the street, et cetera. But, you know, as a child... I thought I could fly and I was so convinced I could fly that when I started kindergarten that fall, and I remember this clearly too, when I made a new little friend, I said, guess what? I can fly. He said, no, you can't. Nobody can fly. And I said, yes, I can. I'll prove it to you. So, you know, I went and I climbed up on the fence in the front of my house. I spread out my little arms, you know, like wings. And I jumped off planning to fly down the street as I, in my mind, I had clear memory of flying down the street to show my friend that I could fly. And of course, I just tumbled to the ground and my friend laughed and and walked away. But I remember what my reaction was as a five-year-old. I was really confused. Like I, I couldn't figure it out. Why do I have such a clear memory of flying and now I'm not able to do it? I couldn't figure that out. So I now realize, looking back, that that actually was my first near-death experience. Interesting. And 11 years old? So 11 years old, I had another near-death experience I now realize. And once again, at the time, I didn't know it was. When I had just turned 11, and this was long before puberty, so I was really just a kid, um, we we were driving in my family station wagon. My dad was driving. uh, My mom and him were in the front bench seats. Myself, my two brothers, my sister, we were all in the back row bench seat. And the station wagon was loaded with luggage. There were tons of suitcases in the back compartment. And this is long before the days of seat belts. So we were just sort of sitting there loosely on the bench seat. Something happened. Suddenly there was a lurch in the car. And I remember saying to my dad, what's that? And, and my dad saying something like, oh, maybe a flat tire. Anyway, what, what ended up happening was we think it was a flat tire. The car was going at high speed on the freeway and there were very um, deep ditches on the side of the, the expressway and the car veered into the, into the side. And then it, it flipped a couple times going down into this deep ditch on the other side and somewhere 
in the course of that happening, I was thrown into the back part of the station wagon where the luggage was. I sustained a head injury and I was unconscious. And I did not regain consciousness for three days. So I don't have worldly memories until three days later. However, what I do remember, and I've always remembered, is I've remembered, so my physical body was unconscious, and I was stuck in the back of the car there somewhere. But I remember floating above the accident scene and looking down. And my father had been pulled out by some passerbys and was at the side of the road waiting for the ambulance. And my father was very seriously injured and bleeding with blood all over his face. And he was looking and my mother had been found. My younger sister had been found. My two brothers had been found. But he noticed that I had not been found. And so even though he was gravely ill, my father kept saying, my daughter, my daughter, my daughter. And I was floating above and I was witnessing my injured father going, my daughter, my daughter, my daughter. And and he has corroborated this to me afterwards, of course, that, that this, yes, this is exactly what happened, what I observed. And I've always wondered if maybe it was that bond of love because he was calling for me that made my soul hover above my father's body. Anyway, uh, so that's one memory I have while I'm unconscious. And then my memory while unconscious shifts. And I have very clear memory of when my body was brought to the emergency department of the local hospital. And again, this time I'm again floating 20 or 25 feet above my body. And I'm looking down. It's as if the ceiling had become transparent or something. And I could look through the ceiling and I could see my little body laying there on, you know, what I now know is an examining room table. But as a kid, you don't know any of these things. And I could see two men huddled over my body. And I, I guessed they were doctors. Um, and I would also see this big, round, circular, disc-shaped lamp. And I was looking at it from the top-down perspective. Now I know, you know, as a medical doctor that, yeah, this is what the lamps look like in emergency departments and surgeries. But I didn't know that when I was an 11-year-old kid. And I was looking at it from a top-down perspective, what it would look like from the top. And I watched that for a period of time. And then my, it's like my consciousness jumped in time because the next memory that I have of those three days that I was unconscious is when I woke up and I clearly remember waking up in my body and looking around me, trying to figure out where I was, uh, seeing that I was in a bed in a children's ward in the hospital. There were other children in my room asleep. It was at night. Uh, railing was pulled up. I had whatever on my arms. I just pulled that out because I had to pee <laughs> desperately. And I carefully climbed over the railing and I started looking for a washroom. I didn't realize they put me in a diaper while I was unconscious because, of course, at 11, you know, you don't use a diaper anymore. <laughs> and I was looking for somewhere to go pee. And a nurse comes running down the hall, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I was back. So interestingly enough, there was a very powerful after effect after this experience, which I now know was a near-death experience. But 
again, back then, I had no idea this didn't happen to everybody when they were unconscious. For all I knew, that's just normal when you're unconscious. Did you tell anybody about this one? Not until recently, because again, it never occurred to me that it wasn't something that happened to everybody. And I have to tell you about the after effect, though, because the after effect was very, very powerful, which was for almost a year afterwards. And again, up until five years ago, I didn't even realize this was an after effect. I didn't put the pieces together, but now I know it was an after effect. Is I could see ghosts. For a year after this, I could see ghosts. I, I would see these wispy uh, creatures in my in my bedroom at night, and I was terrified. And I thought our house was haunted. And I did tell my parents that I was seeing ghosts, but you know they sort of wrote it off as you know who knows stress of the accident or my imagination. But I remember I insisted I wouldn't sleep in my own bedroom. I wanted them to move my bed into the bedroom with my younger brother and sister so I'd have other people in the room with me at night. I was supposed to sleep alone, but I refused. And so they let me sleep with my younger brother and sister. But that lasted for about a year. And I now know that's a very common after effect, mediumistic abilities uh, after a near-death experience. But then it went away after about a year. So that was my 11-year-old near-death experience. I want to pick apart just a little bit of this for a second. I do hear from a lot of people saying, that yes, they have after their NDE, they have spiritual, I don't know, gifts, let's call them, that they didn't have before, whether it's seeing a ghost or, you know, feeling impressions of what people are thinking or all kinds of other things. Now, through your practice, how common have you found that? Is that nearly everybody or is it just a few? Well, it the, the answer is it's variable. And um Part of the, the variability, in both in my personal experience and in my research and counseling many, many experiencers over the years, partly it's the depth of the near-death experience and the type of near-death experience, because there's more than one type of near-death experience, and they can have different kinds of depth. For example, my two childhood near-death experiences, I categorize near-death experiences into three categories. And my the first category is the out-of-body type of near-death experience. And so my two childhood experiences, they were the out-of-body type of near-death experience. That really, that was the bulk of the experience was being out-of-body, being in that place where you're feeling calm, but there's no mystical component to it. Then there is what in the field we call deeper near-death experiences. And, and I call those the mystical near-death experiences, where in addition to the out-of-body usually, then we have a profound mystical experience. And that may involve going into the light. It may involve a life review. It may involve say, seeing saints from their spiritual tradition. It may involve seeing departed loved ones. It may involve having spiritual lessons on the other side, but profound mystical experiences. This is a much deeper type of um, near-death experience. And these white light or mystical near-death experiences have much more likely to have after effects. That's number one. That was your question. But also they have a much greater transformative impact on the person. I mean, sometimes people's lives are changed, you know, night and day after a mystical type of near-death experience. But this is also true, I have to say, of mystical experiences of all kinds, 
because being near death is only one of the situations where people have mystical experiences. Sometimes they happen spontaneously. Sometimes they happen in response to intense prayer. Sometimes they can happen when falling in love. They can happen when looking at a beautiful scene in nature. I mean, there are all sorts of situations where people may have mystical experiences and they can be like near mystical near-death experiences profoundly transforming and also with many spiritual after effects but your question was about the near-death experience and then there's a third category of near-death experience that i categorize which is the distressing near-death experience and so the after effects for the distressing near-death experience are different that's a whole other discussion, but today we were talking about minor death experiences and their after effects. Uh, you know, you had jumped ahead. Would you mind telling us just briefly about the third type, which are the distressing near-death experiences? Distressing near-death experiences, yeah. Yeah, I've interviewed a couple of people that have had those, and actually I'm doing one more this afternoon. So tell me the background on those. Okay, so the third type of near-death experiences, I categorize them, is the distressing type of near-death experience. And in, in my research, I've actually found there are also three different subcategories within <laughs> distressing near-death experiences. And I talk about that quite uh, all of this in my other book, Touched by the Light, that came out two years ago, if people want to read more about it. But you know, one type of distressing near-death experience is people who are fighting the pull to the light. So this is, you know, they're close to death, their body's out of body, and they, they see the light and they're being pulled towards the light, but they don't want to go there. And so they're, they're trying to get back into their body and they're desperately, desperately, desperately trying to fight that pull that's pulling them towards the light. So when I've counseled people like this, I've said to them, well, was there anything negative or dressing or fearful actually when you were out of body and then they go well no no but I didn't want to be there I wanted to be back in my body and so the distressing part was that they were fighting the pull to the 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 out of body and and that's like people have described it to me like trying to fight against an undertow like it is it's a, a really desperate fight to get back in your body uh one of the examples i gave in my book is someone who was in a concentration camp during world war ii uh, a holocaust survivor and you know had seen her parents die and when she went out of body one night she knew she was dying and she's no 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 i can't die too you know and desperately trying to get into her body so so that's one type of the distressing near-death experience what do you call the type where someone has a hell type of experience? That's the next category. Good question. I call that the low astral distressing near-death experience. So that goes under category three of distressing or it's a whole different category? Category two of distressing. Category two. Okay. 
category. So number one is fighting the pull out of body. Category two, I call it the low astral experience. According to many spiritual traditions, that when our spirit leaves our body, there are many different astral planes out there. Just like if you think of it like the ocean, there are many different levels in the ocean that have different density. And the lightest levels are up near the top, close to the light, and the darkest levels are down, 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 deep. All sorts of lurky, dark creatures down there in the dark levels that this is also true of the astral planes and so that some people may go out of body and may go horizontal to an astral plane that's sort of like ours which is filled with good and bad and yucky you know all mixed together Uh, others may go up to astral heaven in the light that's where we want to go we want to go into the high astral planes into astral heaven but sometimes people may actually go lower and they may encounter dark entities or tormenting entities um and pastor howard storm you've probably heard his story is a perfect example of that and when he started to pray by singing jesus loves me which was the only song he could think of uh close to prayer that that was enough to raise his consciousness to the light and he actually experienced a beam of light a being of light coming out and pulling him out of the darkness so that's the good news about the, the the low astral uh, near-death experience. If you think to turn to the light during the experience, I've had other people share this as well, that it can flip and it can become a positive uh, mystical near-death experience. The third category, I call it the um, distressing distortions. I have a, a, a better term in the book, but it doesn't leap to mind right now. And some of these people, it's like a hallucination on LSD or something, you know, it's like mixtures of images and the bizarre story, like, like a really bizarre nightmare that makes no sense at all, that is confusing, that is distressing, images flashing. And I wonder about this category if it's actually a near-death experience at all. I wonder if it might be um, effect of drugs on the brain, you know, that, that, that often it's, um, you know, during surgery, or they've been on really strong medications, if that's causing this sort of, because <laughs> it's, it's not clear, it's, it's not a, uh, a mystical experience, it's also not a hellish experience, it's just nightmare and distortion. So more like a dream that just doesn't make sense, it sounds like. Well, oh no, worse than that, you know, like a LSD trip with a bad dream, you know, like just yeah. distortions. Regardless of what type, those are the three types that I've observed, and there may be more, but, you know, I don't, I'm just saying in, in my clinical experience, I've observed people telling me about these types of uh, distressing NDEs. But the point that I want to make is no matter the type of distressing NDE, they can, with support and with, I think, spiritual intent, one can learn and grow. It can be an impetus for learning, growth, and healing. Um, so it's not just the positive um, near-death experiences that can propel one to spiritual growth, but also these distressing ones can be very powerful stimuli to spiritual and personal growth afterwards, if you choose to use them that way. So in addition to having your own near-death experiences, 
you're an expert on this topic. You yes. have studied this for years from in a medical and clinical standpoint. Yes. So I'm going to ask you some questions that I don't ask other people. And one is, are there some emotions that are missing when we go to the other side? For example, you mentioned that on the train tracks, you didn't feel fear anymore. Are there other negative emotions like fear, hatred, jealousy, things like that that are gone? It depends what type of a near-death experience we have. So again, as I mentioned to you, that there are the three types, the out-of-body type, the mystical type, and the distressing type. So if you have a distressing type, any of the uh, human emotion can be felt there. Fear, anger, um, all of that can be felt there. However, if you have a mystical type where you go into the light, the, the feeling of love and unconditional love is so powerful that it's like it dissolves the other feelings. And if they start to, to creep up, it's like the, the, the love helps to dissolve them. In my most recent near-death experience in 2003, for example, when I was first welcomed into the light and felt that incredible love, welcoming, um, joy, uh, this little ego part of me that was still there, like it was in a backpack or something, sort of raised its little head over my shoulder and was worried about something. <laughs> I was worried. So worry was there. Because the thought, this little part of me went, uh-oh, here comes the life review. <laughs> you know, I've learned that many people, when, they, when they're clinically dead, will get a life review where they'll see the good, bad, and the ugly of their lives. And I thought, you know, nobody's perfect. I've made mistakes in my life, too. But what happened was two beings of light, two great saints, welcomed me to the light. And it's like they read my mind and just glanced over at me and... With a glance, it was like they blew that worry off, like it was a fleck of dust on my shoulder. And then, you know, with the thought, don't worry about it. And I understood um, with that transmission that the love of the higher power is so great and so unconditional that the divine gets it, that we all make mistakes, but understands that it's all part of our learning process. Just sort of like when a child is learning to walk, it's going to stumble, it's going to fall, it's going to skin its knees, it's going to bump its head. But a loving parent understands that that's all part of the learning process and comforts the child rather than punishes the child. And that that's the type of the love the divine has for us. And with that, my worry was just like gone and <laughs> just poof. And the life reviews end up not being negative anyway. Even people that haven't lived great lives usually do not feel guilt, shame, things like that. They feel love fixing all of that instead. Yeah, understood and feel compelled to maybe uh, make amends afterwards or and to live their life differently moving forward, being more loving, more kind, more compassionate, more forgiving. We have a lot, lot more to discuss with Dr. Kaysen, so we've split this episode into two parts, with part two going live in another two or three days. You won't want to miss it as we're going to hear about her medevac plane crash and much, much more. 
To be notified when that episode goes live, follow the show on your podcasting app or click over to roundtripdeath.com and sign up for our email newsletter. Until then, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. Thank you.